Welcome to the Two Vets Talk Pets podcast, hosted by veterinarians Dr. Lewis Kirkham and Dr. Robbie Anderton, who'll give you the inside scoop on the secret lives of your pets and have a lighthearted look at the latest animal news, health tips, and other random facts. All names of people and pets have been changed for confidentiality, so if the story sounds familiar, don't flatter yourself. Every owner is just as animal crazy as you are. So sit down, place your furry feathered or scaly best friend on your lap, and it's over to Lewis and Robbie. Hello and welcome. This is episode 74 of the Two Vets Talk Pets podcast, where too much talking to pets is barely enough. I'm Dr. Robbie Hennett, and I'm joined as I am every week by Dr. Lewis Kirkham, and a plus one as well, Lewis. Plus one, mate. That was on the invite this week, wasn't it? Yeah, plus I didn't one. get the invite. That's why my plus one's still at home. Oh, no. Well, well, we I last feel, week... I feel, I feel like a third wheel here, mate. Well, well last week, last week we... Uh, we we went for the celebrity vet, didn't we? The TV vet, and, yes. And we uh, we I thought, well, how can we go any higher? So today, get someone even more important. That's right. Today, I've brought along uh, the uh, University of Melbourne Vet School laboratory manager. Yeah, wow. Um, head of uh, the uh, the clinical pathology side of the lab down down at Werribee, a medical scientist. Right. But most importantly, my darling wife Deb. Hey. Welcome, Deb. Welcome. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, guys. I didn't know what you were going to say there. <laughs> I, I probably would have narrowed it down to behind every great man is a really awesome woman. So here I am. <laughs> I totally concur with that. I, I would have said in front of in front of ordinary men, Deb. Yeah, in front of an ordinary man is an even better woman. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, I wouldn't say I was a great man, but no. thank you anyway. Oh, uh, yeah, that, look, that's... perhaps I'm just one of the faceless people of the TV TP team. Well, you do put a lot of work and you give me a lot of content too and a lot of help with the show. So much appreciated. But we have got you on for a special reason today because a couple of weeks ago we were talking about salivary cortisols versus blood cortisols and and we're looking at um at a study where they were trying to assess the stress levels of dogs by using salivary cortisols and robbie uh, brought up the question of does salivary cortisol um meaning if it's a high salivary cortisol does that mean the dog's stressed but does that correlate with necessarily the blood cortisol levels which we take you know as as a blood test on, on on a daily or weekly basis so and, yeah. and ra- rather than me doing any actual research myself, uh, Lewis said, maybe Deb can answer that. I said, yeah. awesome. That saves me having to look it up. Well, you put me on the spot at the time and it is something that I don't know anything about. And I thought perhaps I should know something about it. Right. And I also felt that, um, you know, this is a burning question that your listeners probably have been losing sleep over. So <laughs> I'm, I'm really... Books, Deb, they will I'm... Um, yeah. I'm really happy to, to – I've had a good look at the literature and I also um, – I'm really interested in endocrinopathies or diseases of sort of endocrine or hormone systems. So um, it was something that I was really happy to look at. So I've done the deep dive into saliva for the TVTP team. Oh, so nice. happy to do it. Thank you. So, and, and what did you find in that <laughs> sticky little well of uh, knowledge there, Deb? Well, there is a lot of literature Excellent. on it. And um, I guess, um, you know, I'm only going to talk about cortisol measurement in dogs because that's the species that we're generally dealing with when we do measure cortisol. Um, 
And I think that I just want to highlight something that's a bit technical, but salivary cortisol is a bit different to serum cortisol. So this measured in slightly C- different ways. In the blood. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so in a clinical setting, the type of setting that we work in, uh, sort of hospital or, or clinic type environment, we use cortisol levels to diagnose underactive adrenal glands, which is called Addison's disease, or overactive adrenal glands, which is called Cushing's disease. Now, the listeners are probably aware of Cushing's disease. That You know, if you've got a dog over what age, you know, chances are they're going to develop diabetes or Cushing's. So, it, you know, people would probably be familiar with that. It's fairly common illness we do see. It's yeah. definitely where, yeah, where the body produces too much cortisone or cortisol yeah. from the adrenal yeah. gland. Yep. Exactly. So um, we use a specific test protocol that involves collecting blood samples at two time points. And part of the protocol involves providing a quiet environment so that cortisol, which is, of course, the stress hormone, um, doesn't change in response to the sampling environment. So collecting a quick blood sample, which is slightly invasive, is generally quick and tolerated very well by dogs, particularly when there's a lot of TLC and perhaps treats that you would be providing as part of that environment. So we use these cortisol levels in blood, not just to diagnose Cushing's and Addison's disease, but also to monitor the treatment of those diseases. And again, there's, you know, we're using specific um, protocols for that. And um, back in 2010... Dr. Wenger Riggenbach oh, at the clinic. Riggenbach. B- better than Wenger. my pronunciation. Yes. This is great. <laughs> so um, that he's at the um, Clinic for Small Animal Internal Medicine at the Vet Swiss Faculty, the University of Zurich. Ah, Schweiz. Yes, yes. So yeah. he led a study looking at salivary cortisol levels in healthy dogs and dogs with Cushing's. So dogs were fasted for an hour before the salivary samples were obtained and the saliva was collected with a cotton pad so think of a sort of a makeup remover pad right. and um, are you thinking of one of those Robbie you've used one yes. of those lately a little makeup remover pad yes yes yeah, I have I find it's yeah, yeah, yeah I'm not going to go on any further well we could that. ask Richard Gowan he's the cabaret wasn't he the cabaret, <laughs> cabaret man yeah, yeah. He, he might know what a makeup <laughs> pad is I'm pleased you said that because I was picturing the dog spitting into a cup and I thought how are we yeah. going to get that to happen well so, so you just it's all very hard. So we've got this cotton pad and you they were using a clamp or a big pair of tweezers. And um, I want you guys to have a look at this Ooh, picture. Yeah, okay. So um, they yeah. they placed the, this cotton pad. Is that a bit of product placement there with that photo? Is yeah. There's a dog there. Well, with, yes. With, Let me just explain yeah. what's in this visual. So we've got the, the cotton pad in the tweezers um, placed between the upper and lower premolars for two minutes. Okay. Now, salivation was stimulated by placing an open can of dog food within sight of the dog. Now, how do you think you guys would go with this collection method? Just looking at it. Does this look stress-free? Yeah. Not not particularly, no. No, the dog would be wanting to eat the food, number one. And number two would be going, why are you holding my mouth shut with this gummy? Something jammed in here. I I want want to place this, this cotton pad in my mouth with that with the dog food that is currently in front of my nose. What's going on? Is, it, is this, is this you know, um, RSPCA sanctioned? You know, this seems like it's, uh, you know, against all forms of, 
you know, uh, of, of welfare and, and of ethics. Yeah. Well, look at looking at the tin there, mate. Is it sponsored by Pal? Perhaps is that a is that a tin oh. of Pal or is that Chum? It's this, is Which this, one is, is it? Is this Big Mars? Yeah. Big Big Mars that are coming down here with yeah. this. Yeah. Going oh going. There's no stress when you open a tin of Pal in front of the no, dog. No, that's right. Yeah. Wow. So I think that. That probably, it, it looks reasonably difficult. And in this study that um, Wenger Riggenbach right. did. Riggenbach, Wenger. Now, he, he had... Wasn't um, he one of the Wenger boys? <laughs> the Wenger bus. The uh, Wenger bus. Wenger bus is right. coming. Right, yep. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, he conducted this study and 21 out of the 23 dogs in the study were owned by staff. So, vets and nurses there at the Vet Swiss faculty. Schweiz, yes. So Taught with, by Riggenbach. Yeah. So, with the healthy dogs, 30% of the time the owner could not collect enough sample for the test or enough saliva for oh. the test. And in patients with Cushing's, 50% of the time they could not collect enough sample for the test. So, wow. I just think, you know... They had the, interesting. It is interesting, and I think that um, there are a lot of variables which I'm going to get onto. But um, I think that this is probably done in the perfect setting in Switzerland. You know, they're exacting. Oh. That hospital's running like clockwork. Can you imagine <laughs> the bitter disappointment that these people could not get enough spit from the dog, their yeah. own dogs? Yeah, there, there would have been the Alps in the background. <laughs> the cuckoo clocks chiming on the wall. Yeah, yeah. The chocolate being fed amongst yeah. the staff. Cows, well, that's wa- that, cows walking around with big bells. Well, that's that's idyllic. what. Well, I, that's what I'm concerned with is the number of hugs and limp balls required in that tea room, <laughs> you know, to deal with the bitter disappointment of trashing this study that you volunteered to be part of so and the yodeling that be going in the background <laughs> would that be stressful you know got to put these factors into it <laughs> so they did however manage to get enough data to compare serum cortisol levels with the saliva cortisol yes. levels and they did find that they correlated very well right. however a broad clinical application of the method seemed limited due to the fact that the samples were hard to collect yeah right now i think that things have probably moved on a bit since 2010 but i think perhaps in the there are too many variables i'll talk about that so did did they think i mean obviously they've got access to a lot of bells from the cows and that sort (laughs) of thing did they think of ringing some bells a bit like pavlov's dogs to make them salivate a bit more is that a possibility maybe i think so they probably (laughs) tried different types of dog food and treats and you know so Did I, they try swearing at them in German, Deb, to try... <laughs> Schwiss German? Yes, yeah, yeah. That's kitchen cabinet. Scheiße, why are you not salivating? Now I have to boop that out, Robbie. <laughs> why do you do that to me every time? Oh, I think in, in Swiss German that's okay. <laughs> so I kept, I kept looking at, you know, because obviously people are using this test yeah, method. Yes. So there's obviously... You fell down the rabbit some, hole. Yeah. yeah. Oh, look, I tell you what. It, I think I stumbled on the cure for insomnia at the same time. <laughs> but um, yes. anyway, I'm happy to do this. So um, I found a really great article in the Journal of Domestic Animal Endocrinology. And this group um, looked at... Um, um, this is the um, anthrozoology research group that are located at Monash oh, Uni. Yeah, I know those guys. Yeah, yes. fantastic. Yeah, Pauline and Bennett. Well, it was that, the, the lead author was Cobb, so I don't know if you know. Oh, I do. Mia Cobb. Yes. Yes, yes Mia Cobb. Yes, yes, Cobb. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. 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 So she, they have looked at several studies and did a meta-analysis on all these different, about 30 different um, trials. Oh, yes, yeah, so, so they summed they, up all the trials. Yeah, so, so, they, yep. so they looked at, they were looking at over 
5,000 saliva samples from 1,200 dogs and they found some really interesting things and all sorts of factors that limit um, the the interpretation of right. results. And so um, I guess we know that we have um, cortisol levels have sort of daily or diurnal rhythms, but there are also they found there are seasonal rhythms oh. and there are all sorts of factors like the age of the dog, the sex of the dog, the breed of the dog, um, the amount of exercise that dog does will wow. influence the salivary cortisol levels, um, the temperament of the dog. And so there are diff- lots of different collection methods. We looked at one with the cotton pad. There are lots of um, different media that can be used to actually get the saliva from the dog's mouth so not so just not just a cotton pad not just a cotton pad so they they use various things like, like finger some, yep um yep. you know gauze um an ophthalmic sponge um Ooh. and and my favorite the beef flavored rope so try <laughs> try retrieving that one from your dog's gob the beef flavored the rope it's good Having the tug of war. Another one. Wow. Well, I just want to know how you get the saliva out of the beef flavored rope. Is it a great big rope? A small. Anyway. Yeah. Who's, who's squeezing the out. rope out? Yeah. 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 Ring out the rope. Yeah. That's that's definitely the is new that, member of staff oh, having so, to do yeah. that. <laughs> That's as, a work as, experience, kids. Yeah, as, as, as head member of the uh, Werribee uh, uh, Clinical Patholo- Pathological Lab down there, Deb, not your job. No. 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 I'm recruiting somebody special S- for that Strictly one. the work experience kids yeah. do that stuff. Yeah. Ring well, out the rope. How, how would you uh, advertise that on LinkedIn? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a highly motivated person with uh, particular skills is yeah. required to. Yeah. We need someone to strain a rope. Oh, yes. And, and for, for, for long service leave for that person, do you think that you'd buy them a, a, like a soap on a rope? You know, to, to, so they could clean their hands while they're, they're playing with the rope, maybe. Fantastic. Uh, Quite possibly. Yeah. yeah. Or, or for when they go to jail from um, you know, you know, just, uh, committing a, a crime of frustration or the fact, I can't believe I'm squeezing out a rope. <laughs> Yeah, so... So, yeah, all these things matter and even things like the gender of the person collecting the saliva made a difference. Wow. So um, I guess perhaps in that rescue dog situation, you know, so there's lots of examples in the literature of different types of dogs, working dogs, therapy dogs, rescue dogs. So you can imagine perhaps in rescue dogs there might be a particular gender that, that those dogs are fearful of, so that yeah, yes. so the right. so, so yes. the salivary um, cortisol levels are different in those particular dogs that are perhaps scared of women uh, or uh, ma- yeah, well, more commonly male dogs. I yeah. think dogs are scared of. So yeah, that's yeah. interesting. You're so that's really interesting, and yeah, so I think that's that. Um, did they say any? Sorry, did question yes. without notice. Did they say anything in there about whether or not? So there was so many variables with yep. the salivary cortisol. Was that correlated with blood cortisol as well? I think that what they found is that, um, you know, it was really difficult to crunch all those numbers. And, I mean, yes, the the results do correlate, but I think that you've got so many variables that come up when you're looking at salivary cortisols unless you've got a really strict protocol and a really strict set of conditions when they tried to establish reference values looking at all this data from many studies it was very very difficult to establish reference ranges and I guess because you're looking at um, variation within individuals 
and then there's variation between individuals. You almost need to interpret um, the salivary cortisol levels just based on that individual. And I think that um, they basically recommend that you interpret the results with caution. So I think that in a nutshell, I think that it's great for us in a clinical setting where we're using serum cortisols and a really strict protocol and you want to compare those results to a known set of data, a known set of reference values, particularly when you're looking at monitoring medication. Um, But when we look at um, stress, you're perhaps just going to continue looking at the levels within that dog and compare yes. the results to that dog and perhaps their baseline and 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 the conditions that they're experiencing. Yeah, because I think it, 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 certainly if we look at the study they were doing, they, they were doing sort of pre-exposure mm. um, salivary cortisols for that dog and then comparing that with post-exposure of, of the fearful or I think it was a visit to the... Uh, visit to a nursing home yes. or something like that, and um, and and so yeah, I guess that's why they they are doing it for each dog and just going well, it elevated over that time period or it didn't elevate. Yes, but, oh, that's that's yes, that's that's and so really I think good. it's and you can't it'd be difficult to say well, here's a male golden retriever that is four years old and woke up at seven a.m. to have <laughs> breakfast compared to the um, you know, fifteen-year-old cocker spaniel. Yes that's female and has had 10 litres of puppies and we took her at 5pm. So the results are going to vary quite drastically. Yeah, right. So okay. Yeah. So you can't strictly compare it to the blood blood cortisol then because of the, you know, because of the variation you're saying. I think that you'll see decreases or elevations when you've got a stressful situation, but I don't think you can compare the two per se. I think they're great used in the settings that they're currently used. Fantastic. Yeah, so, oh, wow. Yeah, so I don't think you guys are going to be collecting <laughs> yeah, I don't saliva. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's usually because in behaviour we do, like a lot of the studies that are done are done on salivary cortisols and I, I just yeah, didn't realise that um, yeah, that you need to look at each individual dog really and that, that would explain why most of them are done pre-exposure and then post-exposure. Mm, and I think also if that dog is being tested within its own environment with its owner perhaps handling yep. it, then they have to deal with the issues of getting the sample, <laughs> getting the sample yeah. and the beef flavour. and the dog food. Yes, and, you know, yeah. yes. Where to purchase PAL from. Yes, yeah. And I think, yeah, as I've said, I think the, the test methods might have evolved a bit so you don't actually need as much saliva yeah, right. as they did back in 2010 in the Swiss... Um, Vet school, yeah, in the yeah, in the Schweiz. <laughs> yes. we, we actually should try and get Mayor Cobb on to have a chat about it. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, that'd, yeah, that'd be really good. Question with that. Well, I brought this up off off um, podcast when we were chatting this morning over our, over our wheat bix uh, together and um, fecal cortisols. Any sort of anything while while you have your drink, I'll, I'll you have a little. Well, sip there. no. Mm. Yeah, was there any sort of correlation between fecal cortisol, so cortisols in poo? Feces, yes, and and salivary cortisols, or is that is that a reliable marker of stress itself as well? I think those sorts of media, you know, or excretia. Yeah. So you can also use things like hair. Yeah, I was going to say hair as well. Fur. And nails. Ooh, hair or hair or fur. Fur in animals. Fur. We go with nails and nails. What about the nails? Non-allergenic sort of type dogs. <laughs> don't they have hair? I don't Ooh, know. That's a whole. Other that's topic. controversial. <laughs> yeah. That's a hot button hot, topic. Hot button topic. Yeah, the for, not, for Robbie not... to look at. I think that you <laughs> can I'll find someone else to do the research for me. 
so the non-shedding breeds. Yeah, so I think that, yeah, um, I guess with feces and nails and hair, you're probably looking at an overall level of stress rather than at specific time oh, okay. points, yeah, which okay. is what we're looking at usually. Yes. So you're not looking at, um, you know, how much stress a dog had on a particular day. It's over the right. length of that nail growth, so the lifespan of that nail. Because yeah, I guess overall... with that, blood and saliva, I mean, saliva's changed over all the time. Blood is, is, is changing all the time, whereas yeah. your poo's been sitting there for ages, your hair's <laughs> been sitting there for six months, your you know, skin's been there for, you know, for a, a week or so, um, even your urine. Because you know, sometimes you can do um, tests for cortisol in urine, but yes. that urine is still going to have been there for... 12 hours yes you know? so it's not yeah. necessarily going to tell you exactly what's happening then and there mm. it's interesting. the reason i ask is um when um i won't, won't name that but a certain uh zoological place that had a leopard um that i had to go and see had some behavior issues um a few years ago and we actually looked at we we're going to alter the enclosure to make it more environmentally enriched enclosure and we're looking actually doing fecal, fecal cortisols because obviously we can't get a can't get a spit sample yeah. or hard to get a blood sample <laughs> from right, a leopard the whiskers open <laughs> right. the whiskers yeah. does it like salmon whiskers does it like the chicken one yeah. just just we just put a gazelle in there yeah, in front of it yeah. <laughs> gazelle flavored fancy feast yeah, yeah. Right. and then just collected the drool that was just dribbling out <laughs> of his mouth so we couldn't do that. So we were actually looking at doing some fecal cortisols and seeing if they decreased um, over time with us enriching the enclosure mm. and providing a better environment for me. So I just wanted, yeah, so interesting. And, and that's exactly as you said, it was it was gave us a more pooled kind of sample yes. over a longer period of time. Mm. Did you say pooled or pool? Pooled. Pooled. Oh, poo, 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 poo sample. Poo? Oh, pooled poo sample. Yeah, gotcha. a pooling poo. Right. Yeah, yes. yeah. Is it pooling in the pool? Is that the reason why it was stressed out? <laughs> So they do like to swim. Pooed in my pool. Well, having a pool was part of the enrichment because oh, they really? do like to swim leopards. Oh, yes. fantastic. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. Right. Anyway. All right. That's fantastic. Thank bringing you. Some class, yes. oh, well. Bringing some class. Yes. We're bringing some top class uh, at people to interview and to give us some, some real cutting edge info, aren't we, yeah. mate? Three yeah. weeks is in that, a row with the interviews. Yes. Is that cutting edge? I don't know if I'd. Oh, it is to us. Yeah. It is oh, to us. Oh, that's interesting. Mr. Reinstag. Yeah, Professor Reinstag from 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah Wenger, Wenger Riggenbach. Riggenbach. Yeah, Herr Riggenbach. Yes. Ah, okay. very good. Isn't that what mm. you do with a tree when you're trying to kill it? Don't you Don't you Riggenbach it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. All, right. All right. Thank you well, so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. And um, and we'll have to get you on some other time to chat about something else when we're, when we're stuck or, or, or just any time. Well, perhaps if listeners have got questions about yes, tests yes, or excellent. you know that kind of thing i can perhaps um do that but um actually while i've got you both i just want to say that you guys i really commend you on your ongoing commitment to the podcast and it's a great service that you guys provide there's not a lot of things where you can just ask a professional uh question and get a great detailed answer for free so good on you guys i know how hard you work and um yeah people perhaps might not appreciate that but um i think you do an amazing job so snaps for you too thanks thanks thanks, babe and as you say behind every ordinary man (laughs) there's a fantastic woman thank you so much babe okay see ya signing off
Katrina, and you're listening to is it? Hang on, two vets, two pets, right? Uh, two vets, two vets, t- two vets talk pets. Talk pets, two vets. Yeah, okay. Hi, I'm Dr. Katrina, and you're listening to Two Vets Talk Pets. Well, mate, I think finally we realise who who's the who who's uh, the better speaker of, of the of the, two, of the the myself and uh, and, and Deb and who, who should really should be in my chair, mate. Well, no, I'm looking forward to when you're up at the conference and I'm back as I just come here and record one with Deb because that was uh that that was much better than uh, any of the stuff that you usually bring. I oh, know, mate, isn't she fantastic? A source, a font, a font of knowledge, a font of of salivary information, <laughs> a font, yeah, a real a real uh, wet your appetite, wet your whistle. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah we could go on with those. Just, just just ring the bell and then out comes all the information. About it just comes Salida. drooling out. Just all out. Just yes. drooling out. Big, right. big. St- no, I'm not. I'm going to. Oh, yeah, shit, I'm glad. Oh, I'm let's, glad let's I stop there. there. Let's stop there. My goodness. Let's stop there. Now, what do you reckon? Deb talked a little bit about it. Cushing's, mate. You yes. want to have a little bit of chat? Tell us a bit about Cushing's. Yeah, we're going to have a talk about Cushing's. Yeah, want to have a go about Cushing's? Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, yeah. So, or we do a disclaimer first. Oh, we can do the disclaimer. Yeah, let's do a disclaimer. All right, all advice on this show is general in nature, so please consult your veterinarian before following any advice to your pet. We do our best to provide the most up-to-date information, but as veterinary medicine is continually advancing and changing, please let us know if we missed anything or if you need any clarification. So... Cushing's disease. Yeah, what um, is it? So what is Cushing's disease? It's named after Albert Cushing, who was... Uh, a, a Switzerland a, from the Schweiz, Germany, from Gilschkenbach? No, no, he was actually Belgian. Belgian? Right? Bel- Belgian from 1856, right, who was wondering why there were so many poodles walking around that, that lost all their hair and had big tummies <laughs> and hairless tails and drank hang lots of a, water. Hang on a second. This is a oh, stitch hang on, I've got that mixed up with something Have you else. been researching? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I know, because Albert is not a Belgian name. Well, well, no, he was actually his parents emigrated. Oh, he's an import. He's an import. Right. Imp- import. He was at um at, uh, at 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 Bruges University. Right. Brought, the, brought the across in the preseason draft, was he? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pick number five. Yeah. <laughs> Pick right. number five. They got him from from uh, from Swan Districts in Perth. From Gutenberg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Gutenberg from the Police Academy movies. <laughs> yes. Yes. Gutenberg. The Goot. Yes. All right. What is, what is Cushing? <laughs> I'm still struggling. What is it? So, um, so as Deb was saying, cortisol. Cortisol, very important stress hormone that our body uh, releases. Um, it's, impar- it's a really, really important hormone that tells all of our body of different things to do. So, um, But the signaling of it is really, really tightly regulated because too much or too little cortisone um, hormone can cause problems. So um, some people will know it as corticosteroids or cortisone and we use sometimes we use cortisone for for drugs prednisolone and cortisone creams and things like that because they are uh, hormone based things that then affect the um, the organs that you want to try and stop them from doing things but in a normal body in you and me and Deb in the bird that just flew past the window maybe birds I'd imagine birds have got adrenal glands let's assume that they do okay (laughs) (laughs) I'll ask Albert Cushing (laughs) Um, let's get so a bird expert on. A bird expert, Do, yes. Does anyone know birds enough? Christina, she's good let's with get birds. Deb. Let's get Deb on. Deb, Deb next doesn't know week. About birds. Deb, next week. Do birds have a, a, have adrenal glands? No, no. I'll never see her. She's <laughs> burning the midnight oil doing the, the salivary ones. Let's not do the bird one. So Cushing's disease is where the normal tight regulation of cortisone production in a dog or cat or whatever, any other species, horses get it as well. 
no longer is under control. And so what happens is you have an excessive amount of the cortisol, that stress hormone being produced. So what happens in a normal animal is you've got a signal that comes from your brain, the pituitary gland in your brain. It releases a corticotrophic releasing hormone that then goes to your, um, actually that goes from your hypothalamus to your pituitary gland. Your pituitary gland then releases adrenocorticotrophic um, uh, hormone, ACTH, that gets into your bloodstream, travels down to your adrenal glands. Your adrenal glands get that signal and then produce cortisol. That cortisol then comes out into the bloodstream. The cortisol then goes back up to the brain and then stops the production of that first hormone from being produced so that then the ACTH doesn't get produced so that no more cortisol gets in. So it's what's called a negative feedback. Right. When you've got enough of the hormone, the signal stops. When the hormone drops, the signal goes up again, the hormone gets secreted again, until then there's enough there, and then the signal gets cut down again. So that's the negative feedback mechanism that's there for pretty well all of our hormone mechanisms in our body. So when you've got Cushing's disease, there's two basic forms of what uh, of how Cushing's forms. The most common one is what's called pituitary dependent or secondary Cushing's disease. That is where you've got a small microadenoma or little tumor in your pituitary gland that produces a bucket load of the ACTH hormone. It then goes down to your adrenal gland, says, come on, boys, we need to produce, or girls, you know, we don't want to be gender, you know, binary here, a bucket load of cortisol. But because you've got that little tumor up there, it doesn't listen to the switch off mechanism. So the adrenal glands keep on pumping out cortisone, even though there's way too much of it already there. The second form of it is adrenal dependent or primary, where then you've got a tumor that sits in your adrenal gland and it is producing bucket loads of cortisone hormone. So it's not listening for any signals anymore because it's just on its own program. It's just pumping it out left, right and center. So those are the two main forms, both of which lead to a massive overproduction of cortisone hormone, which means that then you get the effects of too much cortisone around your body. The classic ones being drinking more, weighing more, and eating more. So these dogs that are, that are drinking bucket loads of water, weighing heaps, and they're eating out of house and home, and you're going, oh my goodness, has my dog got diabetes or kidney disease or something else for some or i can't they've got an insatiable hunger um you can also get other signs you can get um the hair falls out because too much cortisone we spoke about um baldness quite a few episodes ago yeah i wasn't i wasn't talking about what? co-hosts why I was talking are you about, looking at my head oh because i've suddenly realized there's a tear running down your <laughs> down down your cheek one, there, one solitary a tear. solitary tear yeah. <laughs> while i'm smiling that's right i wonder if we can get a cortisol reading off your tears <laughs> Oh, next week. Next time. <laughs> no, no. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you get hair loss. You get um, swelling of the of the liver. Your liver starts to accumulate water and um, glycogen. The um, the like the product byproduct of um, it's one of the things you use for energy. Your liver starts swelling up, so your liver gets bigger. Your muscles get weak. So your tummy. You get these dogs. The classic Cushing's dog is a little poodly sort of dog, but it can happen in any breed. They drink heaps. They weigh heaps. They've got a big fat tummy. They've got no hair on their tummy. Black pigment and often a hairless tail. Yep. And they often waddle around and they pant heaps because their muscles are really, really weak. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah good. 
and 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 those signs can come about regardless of whether it's primary in the adrenal gland or secondary up in the brain. Up in the bottom of the brain. Excellent. So how do you how, how do you go about your maybe some signs, some thoughts the vet thinks maybe that's it. How do we diagnose it? I'm glad you asked. So what we do first is we run some basic blood tests because and urine tests. Basic blood tests will rule out things like diabetes, kidney disease, um, check your electrolytes, make sure that there's no other underlying causes or potential causes for those signs. What you'll often find at that point, and also you want to be checking for things like um, urinary tract infections and things like that too that can sometimes cause some of those signs and can happen secondary to Cushing's too. The main thing that you're looking for on those primary bloods is you get a often a marked elevation in one of your liver enzymes, more so than what you get with all your others. So it, often vets will see that and go, ah, okay, right, well now I've got this 10-year-old poodle that's drinking a bucket load of water a day and it's got a big tummy, its hair's all fallen out, and now it's got a massively high alkaline phosphatase. I think this dog might have Cushing's disease. I think we need to run some more tests. So what you do with those tests, that's when you start testing the actual adrenal gland or the actual adrenal cortico axis. So that's where you're saying, right, if I put something into this system, what sort of effect do I have? So there's two different tests that you run. They both do basically the same thing. One's a suppression test, one's a stimulation test. But basically what you're doing is you're giving a synthetic injection of a cortisone hormone to see whether or not you get an increase or a decrease in cortisone production. And if you get um, from, as Deb was saying earlier, we've got set parameters for what you would expect in a normal dog and parameters for what you would expect in an abnormal dog. And if it comes up as abnormal, you start getting very, very suspicious that you could have Cushing's disease. And it's a really strict protocol too, like Deb said, that you know you, you get them in fasted, you do a, a test at a certain time, you might give something after after the first blood test, then X number of hours later you, give, you, you take another blood sample. So it's really sort of well standardised. It's it, um, If you're on treatment, it might be X, X hours since your last treatment and that sort of thing, isn't yeah. it? So so you don't get those, like Deb said, those daily variations yeah. of your cortisone aren't affected in the blood test that you take so much. And there is a little bit of it. The frustrating thing with Cushing's is there is a little bit of a grey area there when it comes to try and diagnose because it is a stress hormone. And unfortunately, with a lot of dogs with Cushing's diseases, they do often have comorbidities. They might have skin infection. They might have urinary tract infections, diabetes, all of those things that cause the body stress. And if your body gets stressed, you're going to have a higher amount of cortisone hormone anyway. So if you've got a higher amount of cortisone around anyway, well, then suddenly that means that you go, well hang on, how reliable are my results? So a lot of the times then with that, sometimes you need to run, if, you ha- if you've run one test, you have to run the other test. And if you're still getting a little bit grey, sometimes you need to go and even do an ultrasound. And ultrasounds can actually be really good because if you've got an adrenal gland tumour, you can usually see that you've got one massive adrenal gland. Or if you've got two adrenal glands that are enlarged, that means that they're probably getting the signal from the brain and that both of them are then getting enlarged or hypertrophied because they're getting this non-stop signaling saying, we need more cortisone, and they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. Can you can you find the, the little tumour in the brain one? 
Can, can you detect that one? You could do probably on an MRI. Right. But it's probably generally the little tumour in the brain. So generally they're microadenomas. Yes. So micro being that they're microscopic and they're not causing problems. Occasionally they can become macroscopic or bigger. And so if they're getting bigger, then yes, you can start to get other signs. Usually with where it is, you can then start to have uh, problems with blindness. Right. Because of with where it is, putting pressure around near the optic chiasm or around that part of the brain. Optic nerve, yeah. Yeah, okay. but doing um, doing an MRI is going to be the way that you're going to diagnose that. The difficult thing then is, so if you're going to go and do that, is how you actually try and do surgery to remove it. <laughs> because to do that, so to do, so doing, um, I think it's called a hypospectomy. Um, of where you're going in there and you're mo- removing the hypothalamus or going and removing the pituitary gland, basically you're going in through the roof of the mouth. Right. Because there's an awful lot of brain between the top part and the bottom part because this little gland sits right up at the bottom part of your um, of your brain of, in your skull. Um, so I think when they do it in humans, they go up through the roof of the mouth and wow. sort of, you know, um, predator-wise sort of crack your mouth right open and go fishing in there and try and take out what they need to take out. Fantastic. So, but, the, but the one, the adrenal glands, they're, they're okay just near your kidneys, aren't they? So they're Correct. Much, much easier spot on an ultrasound. Well, well, yeah, yeah. So so that's much easier to try and diagnose from the outside, um, either through blood tests or from an ultrasound. And sometimes you do have to do all three tests. It's a pain in the bum and it's expensive, but sometimes you've got to do all three in order to try and get to the bottom of that's it. That's right. And also sometimes you do an ultrasound and you find you've got an adrenal gland tumour just near the kidneys. There is the potential to have surgery on the, at that stage, isn't there? Oh, brilliant. If you, it's, it's actually your best outcome if you've got a dog that's got an adrenal gland tumor because um if you can go in there and remove the adrenal gland tumor then away goes your problem because your other adrenal gland it's sure it's all the size of like a half-eaten sultana screwed up next to your other kidney but with time it will come back and start producing its own cortisone again but you can treat your signs by removing that adrenal gland tumor the only problem with those is that they are really good at migrating into the caudal vena cava so they can they can Big blood vessel just nearby, isn't there? Massive blood vessel, and it can be a real, a real nasty job to try and remove. I've had one um, go off and see uh, uh, the wonderful Sam Snelling, friend of the show. Going, he had to go and um, specialist fish that, surgeon. Yep. Yeah, he had to go and fish that bad boy out. So right, um, yeah. So that worked, it worked really well for that dog. Um, so treatment wise, so once we've established our diagnosis, treatment. Now this comes a controversial part of do you even need to worry about treatment? Yes. So there are an awful lot of dogs with Cushing's disease that have got the disease that um, that, gen- that then are not actually – it's not actually causing them that much of a problem. They drink more, they wee more, they eat a bit, but they're otherwise handling things really, really well, you know, like, and it's not causing them too many problems. So in those dogs, and particularly if their clinical signs aren't that bad, most of the time you're actually monitoring your improvement on uh, treatment by the improvement of clinical signs. If you didn't have much in the way of clinical signs there in the first place, then why the hell are you treating? Yep. Especially when the treatment is so damn expensive. Yes. And it's so damn expensive to monitor the treatment, uh, the um, your, your response to treatment too. So the times when I look at trying to treat these dogs is if the clinical signs are really bad. Now, I've had a couple of dogs with Cushing's disease that have been so bad with their clinical signs that they've been getting really sick from it. Like really, really bad as far as um, dilute urine. They've got really bad breathing problems. You know, they've got uncontrollable diabetes, all of these other things that you go, yes, we need to try and do something to try and treat this um, treat this disease. Um, the way that we treat, uh, there's a much better 
treatment now. You remember the old minotone mm. that we used oh, to use yes. back when we first graduated, the old DDT stuff. Very toxic stuff, Hugely yes. Hugely toxic stuff. So the stuff we use these days is a drug called trilostane. And what it does, it's a really neat uh, compound in that what it does is it blocks an enzyme in the pathway in the adrenal gland that stops cortisone production. So it means you've still got the signals coming from the brain, but you're actually stopping the adrenal gland from being able to produce cortisone. It can still produce a little bit, but you've just put a massive, massive big handbrake on there. So then your clinical signs improve. It never often completely clears up, but it improves. At the Then the difficult part is going... Right, well, how, how far do you sharpen the pencil, you know? Because once you start them on treatment, then you've got to start doing monitoring blood tests and making sure that you're not suppressing it too much. And at what point do you go, okay, you've got enough control or not enough control, which often then means you need to adjust dosing and then you need to repeat blood tests. And it can be, it, it's a fairly easy disease to diagnose, but a bloody hard one. Like it's easy enough to treat now, but just really expensive to treat. Yeah, I think, it, well, from, from my perspective, it is one of those frustrating uh, diseases, I think, it, it certainly is my impression. I mean, diagnosis is, yeah, a lot of the time, can be easy, but sometimes it can be frustrating. Like you said, you can go through, you know, two or three different tests, blood tests, and then end up with an ultrasound and, and trying to get a diagnosis when it's borderline or saying, oh, we're not sure, let's retest again in, in X number of months' time yeah. sort of thing. And, and so that's frustrating. But then when you do diagnose, it's also, again, like you said, frustrating to treat. Yeah. because it's expensive um, there's a lot of it can be a bit of monitoring that's involved in getting it just right and 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 there's a risk that you overtreat as well yeah so you know you need to be make owners aware of the signs if you overtreat too and, and what they need to do in their situation so certainly not my favorite favorite condition to see in the clinic certainly yeah. and, and i mean and that's like i go back to what i was saying before of that do you need to treat them you know it's it's one of those diseases that I, I, I try and say to clients that um, like I'll, I'll always try and establish the diagnosis because then I can say to clients, this is what your dog has got. So it means that if in the future we're seeing other clinical signs of different things, we know that we've got this other thing. We've already got this vital piece of information. And then we can make sure that we're keeping an eye out for urinary tract infections. Make sure we're keeping an eye out for, for diabetes, that sort of stuff. Because we know we've got... The, the Cushing disease isn't going to go away. But the thing is, is that, you know... It's, it's not going to be something that's going to... That's not a disease that's going to kill your dog in the short term. Yes, long term, it's going to cause some reasonably big problems. Things like you can get pulmonary thromboemboli. You can get... Oh, um, what's that? So, so that's where you get blood clots. So you... Because you lose protein in your urine. Yep. Um, so you... Uh, Cushing's disease, you get leaky kidneys. As you're getting leaky kidneys, you're losing protein, particularly small proteins. And one of the smallest proteins is one called antithrombin-3, which stops you from forming little clots in your blood. So if you're losing all of that antithrombin-3 in your urine, you're what's in called a prothrombotic state, which means then you can start to form these little clots around your body. Ah, okay. Yeah. What are antithrombin-1 and 2 doing at this stage, mate? Uh, they're, they're in Fiji. They're, they they're, they're, they're in Fiji. They're yeah, in yeah. Fiji. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, th I mean, that's a, like you remember. That's a story for another day. But you remember all the all the other little clotting factors and all that sort of stuff. Yo, they, they've all got all these funny, funny names because they were all discovered at different times, and then they've realised what they've actually do. So that's the reason when we talk about a clotting cascade, it doesn't go one, two, three, yeah. four. It goes, you know, twelve, eleven, yep. ten, six. 
12 you know it's all it's all over the shop we so. could dip back to the yeah, talk, oh, no, talk Deb, about De- that yeah yeah Deb will wipe the floor with me with that <laughs> oh, one no, so, she's yeah, very yeah. good on the clotting um, abnormalities so um so yeah Cushing's disease very common it's not necessarily a death sentence but it's often something that you then need to be trying to manage and maintain right one one further question yeah. do you would you say that if a dog has got Cushing's disease uh length of life and quality of life are they affected um excellent question and I would say generally no for both, but I do put a caveat on there that if they start to get comorbidities, they get other diseases other with it, yep. then yes, absolutely it will cause um, a shortening of life and a loss of quality of life. Because if you if that Cushing's causes diabetes, you get calcinosis cutis, like your skin starts turning into, starts calcifying and you're getting bad skin infections, um, you've got... Um, weakened muscles and weakened ligaments you end up blowing your cruciate ligaments um Mm -hmm. you're puffing and panting all the time you do get um uh thromboemboli um all of those things all of those comorbidities yet they will shorten your length of life but um i've had plenty of dogs that i've i know dead to rights have had cushing's disease that have got to 14 15 years of age and not been treated and not had any problems fantastic yeah, mate yeah. controversial about not treating but i i'm i'm of that thing of well if the if the signs aren't that bad then considering how expensive it is to try and treat you need to weigh up it like i'll say to the owners if the clinical signs get past this point and they start causing the problems 100 percent, we need to start treating but yep. um but you it's always good to establish a diagnosis i, I think uh, in in my humble opinion yeah actually controversial you were at fasava weren't you did you go the lecture by david church he gave on cushing's he had a very controversial post. So David Church out yeah. of the uh, UK, Royal College yes. uh, in, 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 London. U- in London. Yep. He, he uh, I think he had a thing of if they've got Cushing disease, take out both their adrenals, the adrenal glands and make them Addisonian. Go the opposite way and then treat them for Addison's. Um, I've, I've heard about that and I've heard of um, another, um, vet, I'm not going to name any names here in Melbourne, who um, had a dog who um, I, I actually saw it after it had had this treatment and I was sort of shaking my head because the owner was telling me that it, the dog had Cushing's disease and was treated with one of the older medications, yep. but treated to the point where they're gone, right, well, we are just going to kill off your dog's adrenal glands and then treat it as an Addisonian because we just flat out could, like they, they couldn't control the, the Cushing's disease. Um, and, um, and like I thought, Wow, who's this cowboy vet? And then it wow. turned out to be one of the um, Willow, top- Willow, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> friend of the show. Uh, yeah, yeah, it t- turned out to be one of the uh, the, the top um, specialists uh, in Melbourne. Wow, um, who who did it? And I've gone. Well, all right, he's not a fly by night yeah. cow- cowboy. If this vet has decided to do that, must have had it. And dog responded really well and lived for quite a long time then afterwards as an Addisonian. So I have heard that of, you know, if you can't control it, just go in there and get the adrenal glands out, chuck them in the bin and then... then, So we'll talk about Addison's next time maybe, about what the the polar opposite of 
Cushing's disease. Yeah, in a couple of weeks. A couple, couple of weeks. weeks. A few yeah. weeks we'll talk about Addison's. Um, a friend of the podcast, that specialist, mate? No. Ooh, okay. Not that's a, narrowed it down. Narrowed it down bit. by about three. Let's get them on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll have a chat about it. Alrighty, fantastic. And we've got a couple of minutes, so we've done a little bit of a reverse on this podcast. So big shout out to Zilkeen. Hi, Zilkeen. Zilkeen. We didn't forget about you. No, wonderful supporters of the show. Um, and and uh, they, they keep us going. So um, thank you very much for your support. Um, it's a mild anxiety, anxiety medication, a derivative of milk. Yes. Um, Causes no problems with Cushing's disease. I've got several Cushing's patients that are on Zilkeen. There you go. There you go. So, But if, if your, pet, your dog or cat's got some mild anxiety stuff, and horses, they're using a little bit of horses now. Really? Too. Yeah. Are you using a, a lot of it or a little bit of it? Well, a little bit of a lot of it. A little bit of a yeah, lot. A little bit okay, of a lot right. of it. So, yeah, <laughs> and helping uh, with loading into... into um, into uh, floats and that floats. sort of thing. Yeah, yes. before loading. So, yeah. so I was going to call them carts, and I go, no, it's not a cart. <laughs> Is it a truck? Well, some of them are trucks. Horse and cart. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that something else? <laughs> All right, and also a big thank you to our Patreon supporters. Yes. We, we appreciate you guys. Um, you, you've been there for, for a long time, those who support us, so thank you very much. Now, I just a quick, a couple of quick things, mate, just in the news. Yes. The Have you heard of the Snap Send Solve app? No. No, you haven't. So the Snap Send Solve app enables authorities and their customers to identify and solve local issues right. for the benefit of communities across Australia and New Zealand. Right. Now, I've heard about this app um, through through our council. Essentially, you put it on your phone, you take a photo of perhaps a broken... A graffiti. Yeah, graffiti. Yep. Broken Telstra pit, you know, um, yep. or... or uh, Someone weighing behind a tree. Yes, or you probably call the police. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe the, the the yeah no we won't say the willy wavers <laughs> no we won't we won't do that and um and you take a photo and you send it to the council and yeah they'll come out and sort of fix the local issue problem yeah. now so importantly recently Wildlife Victoria has now partnered with the app right so if you come across injured wildlife you're able to upload the information into the app and a nearby wildlife care will be alerted to attend the incident right so maybe you find a baby bird that's yes. fallen out of a tree or something. Or perhaps out in the country, a kangaroo that's you know, hurt its leg or, or whatever it might be. You can take a photo of it, upload it, GPS, get get a wildlife carer out to check you out. So reporting an incident will pinpoint the location and you can also take photos and upload to assist with the incident. This rapid response will give the best chance to injured wildlife for quick treatment. I'm I'm going to play devil's advocate on this on, on a negative side. I'm going to try and shoot some holes in this. Yeah, um, yep. I don't know what it's like for you guys um, around Port Melbourne, but how easy do you guys find it trying to get wildlife carers to come in and pick up wildlife animals that you've got that need um, assistance? If it's um, if it's a tawny frog if, mouth, if, if it's an, an owl, hour, if yeah. it's an owl, or a, yes, a tawny frog mouth, or uh, something more exotic. Yes, they're out there. They're out very quickly. If it's yep. a, if it's a penguin, yeah, uh, yep, they're onto it very quickly. If it's a seagull, possum, or a possum, uh, particularly during sort of spring springtime when it's been a bit windy and lots of possums around, uh, uh, well, pigeons don't tend to hand those on so much. Baby lorikeets, yes, they'll come out quickly for those. But you know, your older lorikeet, mm. no, not so much. Yeah. I do agree, mate. There is a real pecking pecking order. Pecking order, shall yes. Shall we say in in what perhaps wildlife carers are willing to take on? Yeah. That the thing that I um I, I think it's this is a, in principle fantastic idea, bloody brilliant idea. 
the problem is is that how quickly yes. and do they have the resources of being able to get a carer out to where they need to be yeah. you know I, and i i just don't think that they've got the resources to try and do it exactly know? i mean you think about the things that come into the clinic you know imagine you've got the baby bird that's fallen out of the tree it's just hopping around on the ground yeah yeah mum's up in the tree feeding it you know normally you leave those alone yeah we well, take a photo of it the person who takes the photo is going to expect screaming, you know, sirens to come around the corner and yeah, come around the corner and bang at you, jump and you yeah. know, pull out the stretcher and off take the baby bird off. I don't think it's going to work like that. Yeah, yeah. But take yeah, you're right. Take the picture of the tawny frogmouth hanging upside down from from the the netting or something in the tree, the the fruit tree. Oh yeah. Oh, we'll be out there. We'll be out there yeah. in, a, in, a, in a snap. Yeah. And so that's the thing. I think it's a, a it's a great idea, and I I really feel for for um. I feel for everyone in this. I feel for the wildlife themselves. I feel for the the general public who bring the wildlife in. I feel for the vet clinics who are um, who are, uh, who de- have to deal with the wildlife when they're brought in, and for the wildlife carers. It there's just there's a discrepancy there. It's so difficult for you know. So for if four vet clinics get a um, get animals dropped off to them and they're trying to ring up the one wildlife carer who's a volunteer and they're sitting there going, hang on, I've got to get my kids from school. Yeah. I've got to get, and then I've got to get to these four clinics. It is bloody hard for them to get around there. So there's times where we've had wildlife that's been there overnight and we've rung up first thing in the, you know, or like late morning from when it's been brought in and they're still not in, you know, and I just, I, 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 don't, I sort of feel like that it'd be better placed if there was like, um, more of a hub, you know, and so whether or not that was the RSPCAs or the emergency clinics or something like that, where people could take them to, or even if other vet clinics could take them there, so then the wildlife carers have only got one place where they've got to go to, so it's much going to be much easier for them to be able to coordinate to get the wildlife carers going to one place than what it is them having to go to a dozen different clinics, because it's hard on us and it's hard on the on the, on the the clients who bring the wildlife in, and most importantly, it's bad for the wildlife. If they're mm. going to get stuck there in a in a cage for eight hours waiting, is someone going to come and pick them up? Mm, yeah, so, I'm, I'm just not sure that I think I think it's a good idea as well. But from what you said, I mean, I, I think you know, often taking the wildlife to if you find wildlife, taking it to the local vet, yeah, is a better option. So at least you can get some pain relief or some some instant care rather than sort of waiting for you're right the care to to find the time who are volunteers and yes, yeah, give, yeah. give their time for free. And and in the same way, I suppose, vets, we, we volunteer our time for wildlife too, yeah. don't we? So certainly at the, the clinic I'm at in Port Melbourne, we would get on a daily basis probably at least one or two yeah, right. pieces of uh, pieces, uh, animals, wildlife yes, yeah. um, coming in that, that we have to triage, um, provide pain relief and then find either – Oh, they they go to God, I suppose. If, yes. if they're, they're too they're too unwell and we 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 can't do anything for them, or you send them on to the, the appropriate wildlife carer, yeah. or look after them ourselves until they can be they can be shipped on. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it's all volunteer stuff, and and you know, there's not a lot of there was no money in it really. It's no, just no. really caring and the goodness of these people's hearts that we we all do this sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah. so yeah, I, yeah, I, I just wonder if um, you know, moving it from going to the vet where they can get almost instant treatment yeah. you know, at, at the vet clinic to, to taking a photo and sending it and then just forgetting about it. You know, it's, I think I've done my bit. Yeah. I've yeah. done my bit. 
Yeah. Everything will be fine now. Yeah, yeah. and also if, you, if you're pinpointing, you know, on GPS where that, that baby bird is on the ground, it's, uh, GPS is not quite that accurate. No, so, no. So, you know, if you get there two hours later, you, you might be a large area you're looking for because everyone else has gone home. Yes, yeah. Gone yeah. away from the bird and you're there, the care going, where is this, where is this could, spot? Yeah, yeah, somewhere around here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, but maybe it works better in the country with the larger animals and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, that, for sure. That, that, that's yeah. a possibility as well. Alrighty, mate. So I reckon I reckon that's about a wrap for cool. for this episode. Sounds we're, good. We're uh, running a bit short on time, but um, thanks again to Deb for for coming yes. on the show and 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 uh, clarifying some some salivary cortisol stuff there. Absolutely. Um, and next week, mate. You, what are you talking about next week? Uh, so next week, there's um, I've got this. Uh, come across this great data trawl that one of the insurance companies has done where they've looked at all of their data from um, 2013 to 2018, looking at the common diseases, the breeds that have problems, um, the the common claims, which I think is some really good um, information there for owners to think about as far as what breeds you can get uh, that, that are going to be likely costing you a lot of money um, and what sort of diseases to look out for. Fantastic, yeah, mate. So some, I love some it. Some really good stuff. So. That's that's some great information. Excellent. So um, certainly we, we recommend using using pet insurance, but this gives you a great idea of what sort of claims people are making. That That's fantastic, mate. Alrighty. So that's about a wrap for this week. We'll, um, we'll scratch you later. Peace out, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Two Vets Talk Pets with Lewis and Robbie. To chat further about this week's episode or ask the guys any questions, search Two Vets Talk Pets on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or send an email to twovetstalkpets at gmail.com. You can find Lewis on Twitter with the handle at vetbehaviorist and more importantly, as the two pet heroes return to their day job of saving animals' lives, be sure to thank them with a five-star review on iTunes. Every time you do, a small, cute animal will receive a cuddle.